Blessings in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 reads, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And go also with me to the book of Jude. <clears throat> the book of Jude. So we're told there by Paul the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophetic utterance that evil men, seducers, would wax worse and worse, and they would be deceived, and their whole focus and purpose would be to deceive. And here in the book of Jude, verse 3 and 4, we read, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray before we continue. Father, in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus, we come before you, Father, and we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Father, I ask that you would lead us and guide us and direct us in all truth, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, not only to our day and our hour, as to these men, these seducers that are right up into our day, even as Paul prophesied, they're living in our day, they're, they're, they're ungodly men, and they are deceived and they are deceiving. And many are turning your grace, O God, into a license to sin, Father. But we know that your word clearly teaches the opposite, Father. So I pray, Father God, that you would open up our eyes, Lord. You would open up our ears. You would open up our heart. And you would sow your word, the word of truth, into the depths of our being, Father. I ask this, Father, in no other name but in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Titus. Let's go to Titus before we get into the depths of our study of the very important teaching about the seducers in our day. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we read, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So the first thing I want to point out about this passage is verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 make up one sentence. And when we take one verse out of that sentence, we are disrupting the context. And that is how so many people create false teachings and pretexts for their belief system that cannot be found in the solid word of God because they're, they're, they're disjointing parts of sentences out of its place and making it say something that it is not saying, or they're taking something, disjointing it from the rest of the sentence, and they're giving an incomplete truth. We have to get back to the biblical authority of Scripture. And in order to do that, we have to, 
we have to let God be true and every man in liar, including ourselves, first thing. Second thing, we have to get back to the very fundamentals and foundations of reading and studying the Bible, remembering that there was no chapter and verse divisions in the original, and we need to seek God on those paragraph divisions or the thought breakups as we go through any particular letter. Second thing I want to point out is the grace of God brings salvation, not the works of men. The grace of God clearly says that. But it also says that the grace of God is our teacher. And what does it teach us? It teaches us to deny ungodliness. It teaches us to deny worldly lust. And it teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It also teaches us to look for that blessed hope, which is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that verse is really clear that Jesus is God. He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what did our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, do for us? He gave himself for us. For what reason? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. So he purchased us back from iniquity, back onto himself. And he purifies, or he wants to purify us unto himself to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Okay, so when you take verses 11 through 14, that makes up one complete thought. It is clear that the grace of God is not a license to sin. However, Jude declared it, and Paul declared it. Jude said it was already taking place in his day. Um, Paul said that these evil men would become worse, exceedingly worse. And that's what we're seeing in our day here in 2021, especially in the United States. We see, and we have seen for quite some time, guaranteed for the past 50 to 80 years. You can go back. Um, I really like A.W. Tozer, and uh, I listen to some of Leonard Ravenhill's stuff, and, and I read some of his books. But it has always intrigued me that those individuals, Tozer, who you know was really prominent through the 50s and 60s, he died, I think, in 1967, somewhere around there. And then Leonard Ravenhill, who knew Tozer, but continued his ministry into the 90s, I believe. But those men were always calling out the church in their day for worldliness, for ungodliness, and tweaking the grace of God in their favor to continue in their, their ungodliness and in their worldliness. Here we are, 2021, and it has become far more disgusting just in the United States as it is than it was during the time of Tozer. But the church, I would say the world in the time of A.W. Tozer in the 1950s was probably purer than much of the church in America in 2021. And the reason for that is because these seducers have entered in and they have pretty much become the most prominent men. Now, I'm not going to name names because I know that when you start to name names, you immediately lose people. And what I want to focus on is really just going through the scriptures. And as we go through the scriptures, if you listen to some of these prominent false teachers, um, the scriptures will correct them and you will be able to have your eyes opened up by the truth. And I don't want to... Um, 
bring an offense that would cause you not to hear what the scriptures have to say. But beloved, listen, we are in the year 2021. We are drawing close to the end of all things. And every single one of us is going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives. Um, we're going to have to give an account for every idle word spoken, Jesus said. And we need to begin to take the word of God serious. And we need, we need to begin to allow the Holy Spirit to do his job, and that is be our teacher. And allow the Holy Spirit to give unto us the gift of discernment, I think is probably one of the most important gifts in our day for the church, is the gift of discernment. So one of the ways that these false teachers, these uh, seducers, these deceivers, are deceiving the church is through the book of Romans chapter 7. Now, I can tell you that I wasn't a believer for more than a month, and I was hearing the gentleman that uh, at the at the church that I was going to at the time where I gave my life to the Lord, um, I was already hearing, within a month's time, I was hearing the false teacher at the time, I obviously didn't know he was a false teacher. My wife and I were just coming out of Roman Catholicism and freshly giving our lives to Jesus. But this individual who is a false teacher today, clearly a false teacher, um, was using Romans 7 as a crutch to continue in sin, ungodliness, worldliness, by saying, well, even Paul said, and if Paul said, well, then who are we? And if you just read... If you believe Romans 7 is the normal Christian life of wanting to live right, but not able to live right and constantly falling back into sin because, oh, we're just sinners saved by grace. You cannot come to that conclusion if you read Romans 7 in its context. And Romans 7 in its context, the greater context, I would argue, would probably be 5, 6, 7, and 8, a good portion of 8. But tonight, we're just going to go through chapter 6, 7, and 8. And I can tell you, by the time we finish with chapter 6, you're going to clearly see that you can't walk into Romans chapter 7 believing that Paul was talking about himself as a Christian struggling to obey Christ and to live holy and to live righteous. You cannot read Romans 6, go into 7, and continue with that mindset. You just can't do it. There's um, very clear things written in Romans chapter 6, even in Romans chapter 7, and especially in Romans chapter 8, that totally correct and debunk that theory that this is the normal Christian life, that Paul himself was struggling with sin um, to the degree that we read in, in Romans 7. Also, I want you to... Uh, Search out all the, the letters that Paul wrote. Read them all and see what Paul taught. And ask yourself, how could Paul make this the Christian standard if he himself is struggling so severely to walk in the Spirit and walk by the Spirit and constantly being enslaved back to the flesh and sin? Especially in Philippians where Paul says that when it came to the law, he was blameless. So Paul said that has a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that when it came to the law of God, the law of Moses, he was blameless. So that within itself 
causes us to say, okay, that our view of Romans 7, the modern view of Romans 7, doesn't harmonize with what Paul said about his obedience to the law of Moses. Okay, Paul obviously needed, to, needed a savior. We see that very clearly in the book of Acts. But Paul is saying that when it came to the law, he was blameless. All right, so we have to make sure that we harmonize scripture. The scripture is perfectly harmonized when we are reading, when we are studying, when we are doing um, longer segments or, or topical studies, rather. If we are not, if scriptures are not harmonized, then our theology, our doctrine, our views are off, not the scriptures. It's us that are not harmonizing with the scriptures. Okay, so Romans chapter 6. This is probably going to take about a good 45 minutes from this point forward. So I don't want to speed through it. I want to really go through it. Um, but there's a lot to cover. So please open up your Bible and um, read along. Take notes. Go back and re-listen to this as many times as you need. You can always reach me on my website at truechurchfalsechurch.com, truechurchfalsechurch.com. In the uh, contact section is an, my email. You can reach out to me through email if you have questions or if you want to challenge what I'm saying. Um, and if I get enough questions that are worthy to discuss, I will discuss them in light of Romans 6, 7, and 8. But here we go. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So right there, just verse 1 and 2, he's clearly answering a question. And that question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. God forbid. Grace does not abound with continual sinning. That's what he's saying. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So to think that we can continue in sin that the grace of God may abound, that is a wrong thing. That's wrong thought automatically. We cannot continue in sin and grace will abound. In fact, he goes on and says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So what I want to really pitch towards you today is Romans 6 and Romans 8 should be the normal Christian life. The normal Christian birth, Romans 6. The normal Christian life, parts of Romans 6 and Romans 8. So a true Christian is to be dead to sin. A true Christian is dead to sin and doesn't live any longer therein. In fact, we will see that um, in Romans chapter 6, it says that a Christian is dead to sin three times and it said that a true Christian is freed from sin three times. So again, just taking that understanding and saying, wait a minute, Paul is clearly saying that we must not continue in sin that grace may abound. But in Romans 7, you have this man that knows what's right, but he can't fulfill it. And at the end, he says he's just a wretched man. That's not Paul the Apostle, and that's not a Christian. That's not a Christian. Okay? One of the biggest problems with the understanding of Romans chapter 7 is they're, they're tearing into the middle, verses 13 to the end, and they're not keeping it in context with verse 1 and in the greater context of chapter 6 and chapter 8. And again, you could even go back and read 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, all four chapter, five chapters, and you'll have a greater harmonization of 
Romans 7 as well. So, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? When we were baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, so that we, being that we have been baptized into his death, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. We should walk in the newness of life. Okay, so obviously if we're dead to sin, the newness of life cannot incorporate a continual life in sin. That's a contradiction. Immediately you have a contradiction. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, so knowing that we should be like, uh, be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Okay, so... Our old man was crucified with Christ. For what reason? So that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Just a few books to the right. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 10. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, had he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing them over them in it. Okay, so I really want to draw your attention to verse 11. Because when we were born again, there was a circumcision that took place in our hearts, which was the fulfillment of the circumcision, the law of circumcision that was given to Abraham and to the Jewish people, which was a foreshadowing of what God would do through Christ, through the rebirth in the church, in those that come to, to, the, to God through Jesus Christ. They would be circumcised in their hearts. It would be a circumcision made without hands. And that is for what purpose? For the putting off of the bodies of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's exactly, that's a pretty much a parallel passage of what's being said here in verse 6 of Romans 6, where it says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So you take both Romans 6, 6 and Colossians 2, 11, and coming to Christ, being born again, the normal Christian birth is the removal of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here in Romans 6, 6, it says that being crucified with Christ is for the purpose of the body of sin to be destroyed. For what purpose? So that we will not serve sin. We, a true Christian, 
has gone through this experience spiritually and no longer has to serve sin. Okay, we're going to get more in detail or more depth in that in this chapter. But let me just stop and say, that's why we don't keep the law of circumcision as Christians. Because the law of circumcision of Moses was in the flesh. It was a physical, which was a type and shadow, a picture of what was yet to come. It is fulfilled when we come to Christ through the circumcision of Christ, which is the removal of the sins of the flesh. Okay, again, that is not something we can do. Therefore, it is by the grace of God, it is by the favor of God, the love of God, the mercy of God that he is showing mankind through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the work and operation of the Holy Spirit. So no one can boast. Nobody can boast of, of having the sins of the flesh removed or, or, or the body of sin destroyed and no longer serving sin. We can't boast because it was a work of Jesus. It was a work of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, brothers and sisters, every single one of you here that is listening to me has been to a funeral. And you've seen that loved one in the casket. Are they freed from sin? Absolutely. Are they freed from engaging in, in this world, in this life? Absolutely, they're freed because they're dead. That's the analogy I believe that Paul is giving us, is that if we're dead with Christ and risen with Christ, then we're dead to sin, therefore we're freed from sin. We're freed from sin. And it wasn't our works that freed us from sin. It was the work of Jesus that he has performed in us by his Holy Spirit. Thereby we are freed from sin. Verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We must reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Notice how we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ. We are not alive unto God through our works. We are alive unto God through Jesus Christ. This is the focus. This is the Jesus Christ should be the focal point of every born again believer. Jesus is our focal point. The life we live, we now live through the life of Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus Christ, through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And when we are truly living and abiding in Jesus Christ, then we can live this out in reality. We can live free from sin. Sin is an enemy of God. Sin is an enemy of God's creation. Why would God not want to free us from that? And he will free us from it, even to the point of ever being tempted by it. Right now, here in this earth, we will be tempted by sin. But we're free from sin. And we'll see that even further as we continue on. But let me just continue and say, concerning verse 11. Are you reckoning yourself to be dead unto sin? Are you reckoning yourself to be alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Verse 12. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What kind of command is that? If it's not a possibility for Christians to not let sin reign in their mortal bodies, let not sin therefore, what's it there for? Now that we have recognized, now that we have died with Christ and we're, di we've dead, we're dead unto sin and we're reckoning ourselves to be dead unto sin and we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ, now we have the capacity to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members, that is your flesh, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verses 11 and 12 and 13 are clearly a disciple's responsibility. It is your responsibility to reckon yourself dead a deed unto sin. It is your responsibility to reckon yourself alive unto God through Jesus Christ. It is your responsibility to not let sin reign in your mortal body. It is your responsibility that you shouldn't obey it in the lust thereof. It is your responsibility, dear Christian, that you don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. And it is your responsibility that you yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. No longer using your hands or letting your feet run you into sin, but now your instruments are now God's instruments whereby they can become instruments of righteousness unto God for the glory of God. For the glory of God. But how many false teachers that have snuck in are telling the church that there's nothing you have to do. Jesus did it all. And all you have to do is just believe on him. And when you die, you're, you're going to glory. You're saved forever. Once saved, always saved. They're laying, they're, they're literally removing the God-given responsibilities that have been given to us, the church, born-again believers, by the power of the Spirit of God that has been given unto us. We should perform these things. What does a false teacher do? but teach the opposite of what Jesus and his inspired apostles taught. So yeah, if you're failing, if you have not experienced dying to sin, rising with Christ, having the body of your sin destroyed, having the, you're, you're experiencing the circumcision of Christ where the bodies of the sins of the flesh are removed, if you are not reckoning yourself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ, if you are not, if you are allowing sin to reign your body, if you are obeying it, well, no wonder Romans 7 becomes such a reality for so many that in name are calling themselves Christians, but in deed and in action and in reality are not Christians. But this is not the will of God for you, beloved. But you have to be willing to let God be true and every man a liar. Quit worshiping men and worship the man Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God, who was God manifest in the flesh. And as, as long as you are looking unto Jesus, as long as you are abiding in Jesus Christ, then you can be freed from sin. You can be dead to sin and you can be alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so what does it mean to be under grace? 
to not for to be under grace is to be free from the dominion of sin. Sin does not have dominion over those that are under grace. But how many people are teaching grace has a license to sin? Oh, words if it you know the grace of God, the grace of God that overlooks the grace of God. No, 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 the grace of God frees us from the power of sin to where we're no longer under its dominion. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Go with me real quick to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, let's see. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So let's go back now to Romans chapter 6 and look at what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here in Romans 6.16, Know ye not to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Jesus told us how to deal with our members. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying to literally pluck out your eye and literally cut off your hand. But Jesus is clearly teaching us that we are not to be passive with sin and not to be passive with the members of our body, which can lead us into death and into sin, which can lead to death. But how many people have been taught that the teachings of Jesus aren't for the church? It was for either back then or for the future, but it's not for the church. It's not for the church age. They're false teachers, beloved. We're called Christians, not Pauleans. We are to go out and teach people to obey everything that Jesus Christ taught. That is the Great Commission. The only thing that many are doing in the West to fulfill the Great Commission is baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not preaching the true gospel, <clears throat> and they're not discipling men and women <clears throat> to obey the teachings of Jesus Christ. They're doing the exact opposite. Hence, we're seeing this massive falling away from truth in the West. No wonder America is about to hemorrhage in their own sin. Because the false church has become exceedingly great. And the true church has been discredited by false teachers and false brethren and false apostles who have arrayed themselves as angels of light. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 6, let's continue. Romans 6 verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were, ye were. That means past tense. Ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. 
being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Again, it's showing a past tense. Ye were the servants of sin. And then in verse 18, it says, being made freed from sin. So you're freed from sin. So what is there? Is there just left a big vacuum now? Or are you now a servant of righteousness? Listen, beloved, there's only two types of people. Those who are dead in their sins and awaiting judgment and those that are dead to sin. There's only two types of people. Those that are servants to sin and those that are servants to righteousness. There's only two types of people. Those that are dead to God because of their sin and those that are alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 19, I speak after the manner of, of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. If it was not possible for a born-again believer to yield their, serve, their, their members as servants to righteousness and unto holiness, why would Paul write that? If Paul was this man in Romans 7 that we're about to read, why would he be laying out these standards for the church? This is the true Christian standard. This is the normal birth and the normal beginning of the walk for a believer. This is it. And it all starts with Jesus Christ. And it continues with Jesus Christ. And it will end with Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. But don't overlook the clear responsibilities that are given to you now that you are free from sin. Now that you're dead to sin. Now you are can be alive unto God. No, you are no longer a servant to sin. Now you are a servant to righteousness. Verse 20, for when ye were, again, that's a past tense verb. When ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. We all know that when we were living in sin, we were freed from the true righteousness of God. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, but now, being made free from sin, third time, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So just as in verse 20, when it says, when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. But now that we're no longer servants of sin, we're freed from sin and we're free to live and to walk in righteousness. That is the normal Christian life, beloved. Let's read verse 22 again. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if the Paul is clearly saying the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is still death. That's not speaking in a past tense, saying the wages of sin were death. No, it's still possible that everyone who commits sin will fall into death, regardless of what you call yourself. We're not getting into the kingdom of Jesus Christ because God has set it up like a Costco or a Sam's Club where we just show our, our 
Christian card or Catholic card or Baptist card or Protestant card. No, you got to be born again, filled with the very life of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness that Christ is producing in you and through you by his Holy Spirit. But if you're going to continue in sin, you're going to continue in death until the day of judgment. You can't be a servant of sin and enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's clear. Romans 6 makes it clear that a true born-again Christian is dead to sin, they're freed from sin, and they're now free to live in righteousness and in true holiness. And they have and will receive the eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now let's roll into chapter 7. Know ye not, brethren, parentheses, for I speak to them know the law. That is one of the keys to understanding Romans 7. He's speaking to those that know the law. And if you go back and read Romans chapter, uh, the book of Romans from the beginning, it's very clear that Paul is talking to Jewish individuals at various times. He has them in mind when he's writing. Here is a very clear. Either they're, they're um, uh, true Jewish people that are observing the law, and came to faith in Christ, but they're still trying to live by the law, and they're forcing on the Romans, or there are Gentiles that were converted to Judaism and knew the law. We're not sure, but from this point forward, we're going to see, I believe, three or four different laws that Paul talks about, okay? Right here is one of the keys. He says, for I speak to them that know the law. So Paul is wanting to talk to those that know the law. So what are some um, true fruits or some true characteristics of somebody who knows the law but has not experienced Romans 6, dying with Christ, rising with Christ in the use of life. What are some characteristics that we can find in someone who knows the law of God, may even really uh, agree with the law of God and see that it's good and healthy for someone to live in and may even love the law of God, but if they have not yet died with Christ and risen with Christ, if they have not yet been freed from sin, if they have not yet died to sin, the law can't free them. The law will only show them that they're guilty or the law will con condemn them. And that individual will definitely fit into this picture in Romans chapter 7, verse 13 going forward. And that's why Paul asks a question that he answers at the end of this Romans 7 dilemma. But here's the key. This unlocks our understanding for everything. He's talking to those that know the law. Let's continue. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. So as long as someone lives, the law has dominion over them, just like sin. As long as you're living in sin, sin has dominion over you. But to be saved by grace is to come out from the dominion of sin and come under the dominion of righteousness. Verse 2, for the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So I want to make something very clear. Um, 
I'm not sure how all translations do this, but I know in the King James translation, they're putting law in a, a lower case. It should be capital. It should be capital because it's speaking of the law of Moses. Okay, so we need to make that very clear. He's talking about the law of Moses, and it's very clear when he gives the illustration of this woman. It's the law of Moses. Okay, so this woman, as long as her husband is dead, if she be married to another, she won't be considered an adulteress. If she be married to another man. Verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law, that is the law of Moses, by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him, that is to Jesus. We're not to be married to the law of Moses, we're to be married to Jesus, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Beloved, to say that that we cannot produce holiness and righteousness, that is the fruit that God wants us to produce, and it cannot be produced through the law. It can only be produced by being married to Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we come to Jesus Christ, when we're married to Jesus Christ, we die with him. He destroys the sins of the body, destroys the sins of the flesh through the circumcision of Christ, and we begin to walk in the newness of life. We're servants of righteousness, no longer servants of sin whereby we can now produce the fruit that God wants us to produce. This is the normal Christian life. Verse 5, for when we were, past tense, when we were in the flesh. Okay, so again, remember, don't lose these clear truths of these past tense uh, verbs that are being used in Romans 6 and here in Romans 7. How could this man say that when we were in the flesh, but yet in verse 14 through 24, this wretched man is in the flesh. No, a born-again believer was in the flesh. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So again, flesh, our members, sin, it's all speaking of the same exact thing. Okay, It's all one and the same. Verse 6, But now... We are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law of Moses sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me or brought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. So the sins that we were committing before the law of God was presented to us to show us that we were in sin, that sin was already destroying us. We just didn't have a law to point out to us that it was sin. But this law not only points out to us that it's sin, but we're going to continue reading and seeing that this law also points out that it's destroying us. It's killing us. It's holding us in this place of death. Verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, 
that it might appear sin. So it wasn't the law of God that brought death. It was sin that was already working in us. And the law just revealed that it was sin that was already that had, was in us so that it might appear sin. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. That's the biblical definition of sin, 1 John 3, 4. It's the transgression of the law of God. So we were committing these transgressions against the law of God, not realizing, not knowing it, but it was still working death in us. And when the commandment came, then we just died. It was like sin appeared to be sin and not just sin, but exceedingly sinful. And it was working death in me. So verse 13, let's read that again. Wasn't that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. So even in God sending his law to reveal sin in us is a, mercy, a move of mercy and grace. He's showing us favor by sending his law to show sin working in us because what is sin doing? It's working death in me. That within itself is a loving and merciful thing. And every single one of us that came to faith in our 20s or 30s or our teenage years and we heard the gospel and we were told that we had sinned against God, we got upset, we got aggressive because we realized what we had been doing and calling fun was actually working death in me. It's a clear sign and, and show of mercy and grace by God that he would reveal his law to us to show us the reality of what we're actually doing is producing death. Okay? Working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Who's carnal? In the flesh. In our flesh. We're sold under sin. We're under the dominion of sin. That's carnal, flesh. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So we got to answer the question, where does sin dwell? In me, but where? For I know that in me, parentheses, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. What dwells in me, that is in my flesh. What dwells in my flesh? Sin. Sin dwells in the flesh. Go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And remember what Colossians 2, 11 said, that we experience the circumcision of Christ, which is the removal of the body of the sins of the flesh in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is not describing himself as a Christian because a Christian does no, no longer has their flesh operating 
the way this person is operating in Romans chapter 7. Because in this this Romans 7 individual, sin is still dwelling in him, that is, in his flesh, and that in him no good thing dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He, He sees good, and when he reaches in to try to perform it, he comes up bankrupt. He doesn't have the capacity to fulfill what he sees to be good in the law because he's void of the newness of life. Every time he comes up with something, all he comes up with is his flesh and his sin because that's what's dwelling in him. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Again, where does sin dwell? In my flesh. Verse 17, verse 18, and verse 20 go together. Sin dwells in the flesh. So sin is dwelling in the flesh. Hence, the need for the circumcision of Christ. We all need the circumcision of Christ. One of the biggest problems that people have is they don't understand what salvation is. They think salvation is just having your sins forgiven and and an insurance policy that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. But the Bible's clear that there's a future salvation that we're still awaiting. Paul talks about it, I believe, in chapter 4 of Romans and in chapter 5. Peter talks about it in his letters. There's a future salvation that we're still awaiting that we have not yet experienced. The salvation that we experience here and now is, sal- is the salvation from sin, both the guilt of it and the power of it. And it's a receiving of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the newness of life. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I believe, uses the word or makes reference to the Holy Spirit 17 times. Verse 21, I find then a law Okay, so he finds another law, not the law of Moses, but he finds another law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members working against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Again, going back to verse 18, where is the law of sin? In the flesh, hence the need for the circumcision of Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? People will stop there and say, see, that's Paul. Look at from verse 14 to 24. Look at Paul. He was a wretched man that wanted to do what was good, but didn't have the capacity to do good. No, that is not Paul has a Christian. And I, maybe it was Paul has a Jew. A lot of people use that. That's the present historical tense that Paul is talking about. I don't know if it's Paul has a Jew, but I can tell you for sure it's not Paul has a Christian because Romans 6 would not make sense and Romans 8 wouldn't. And the answer that Paul's going to give in verse 25 wouldn't make sense that Paul had experienced the answer that he gives, but yet still be stuck in that place. Again, he's talking to those that know the law. This letter was not written to us. It was written for us. But Paul was writing to the church, to believers in Rome. 
he knew firsthand some of the issues that they were dealing with. What that's what produced this letter. We don't know the fullness of what Paul knew, why he wrote some of these things. We have to stick to context and understand that he's not saying some Christian, some Bibles will have a header over verse 14 and say the normal Christian life or the Christian struggle. That's not a Christian. It can't be a Christian. If it's a Christian, then rip Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8 out of your Bible and Colossians chapter 2. Strip him out. Rip the fact that, that Matthew one twenty one says that Jesus, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. This person here in Romans 7, verse 14 to 24, does not sound like a person that who has experienced Jesus Christ who saves them from their sin. Here's the answer, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, what's the answer? Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. If you want to continue in sin, then continue in the flesh, because that's what it's going to produce. Okay, but notice, in this chapter, we have the law of Moses, we have the law of sin, but look at chapter 8. There is therefore, so the fact that it says therefore, means that it's still linking back to chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. How could a person still be walking after the flesh, but not after the Spirit? Or walking in after the flesh and still be walking after the Spirit? You can't. They're, 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 they're opposing... I don't want to say forces, but they're opposed. They're, they're, they're enemies. The flesh is an enemy of the spirit and the spirit is an enemy of the flesh. The person in Romans 7, 14 through 24, he ends by saying, oh, wretched man that I am. That is someone who is under condemnation for their living under the law of sin, which is in the flesh. Walking after the flesh produces the law of sin. Those that are in Christ Jesus will not walk after the flesh and will not fulfill the law of sin, but will walk after the Spirit and will not be condemned. Again, that's your responsibility. It is your responsibility to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit. So see, now we see a totally different law. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. To say that Paul was speaking of himself as a Christian in Romans 7, 14-24 destroys his the fact that he, or let me just say it this way, the fact that he says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's clear that Romans 7, 14-24 was not Paul because Paul, when he wrote this, was a bona fide born-again Christian and he had been freed from the law of sin and death. He even uses the pronoun me. Let's read it again. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me, me, Paul, free from the law of sin and death. 
The person in Romans 7, 14-24 is a man who is still under the law of sin, living and walking in the flesh, where sin is still dwelling in him. Paul says that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus. And it is that law, it is the law of the Spirit, the life of Christ Jesus, that frees us from the law of sin and death. It does not say, the Scriptures do not say, the Scriptures do not teach, that by the law of works, we are free from the law of sin and death. It is by the law of the Spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus, has made me free from sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So why did God send his son? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? For sin. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Yeah, for what purpose? To condemn sin in the flesh. Beloved, when you come to Jesus Christ, your sin is condemned in Jesus Christ. And the law of sin and death is obliterated. It is destroyed. And you receive the law of the Spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus. Hold your place here and go to 1 John chapter 4 real quick. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, because when you ask the question, why did Jesus come? Why did God send his only begotten son? And you let the scriptures answer for you, not these um these men with, with fancy words and fancy phrases and long, drawn-out explanations that are not even biblical. Just take the Word of God and let the Word of God answer your questions for you. Right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, we're told why God sent His Son. He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For what purpose? To condemn sin in the flesh. But look at what 1 John 4, 9 says. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent. God sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? That we might live through him. That we might live through him. Far too many people look at Jesus as a mighty savior in that they can continue in sin and his love, his mercy, his grace, which is their made-up view of love, mercy, and grace. It's their made-up Jesus. It's a false Jesus. Allows me to continue in this sin. No. Jesus is mighty to save us from sin. From the power of sin. We're told in 1 John that Jesus was manifested to take away our sin. That's in chapter 3. We're told further on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus is manifested in your life, he takes away your sin. That's the circumcision of Christ. He destroys the works of the devil. And he places his seed within you. That is the law of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, which is now giving us the life in Christ Jesus. Do you see this? Verse 3 ends by saying that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. For what purpose? Why did he want to condemn sin in the flesh? That the righteousness of the law, that is the law of Moses, back in chapter 7, it talks about the law being good and holy. Okay, 
but it could not produce the righteousness of the law because of our flesh. So something had to come in the place of the law of Moses and remove our flesh, which produces sin, which leads to death. And that is why Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because Jesus Christ is the one who performs the circumcision of the heart for the removal of the sins of the flesh. Jesus Christ is the one in Acts chapter 2, I think it's like verse 35 or 36 or verse 38, I think, when he ascended into heaven, was exalted, was given the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon the apostles and which he pours out upon every single person who truly comes to him and repents and is baptized, is believes and baptized and receives the Holy Spirit whereby they can now live as in a practical reality, Romans 6 and Romans 8, Romans 7. It's not the normal Christian life. It is the normal life for those that know the Bible, that know the goodness of the Bible, know it's true, but are void of the baptism of Jesus, void of the circumcision of Jesus, and void of the Holy Spirit then I can see how that can be true for many, and it is true for many, but it's not because they're born-again believers. It's because they know the Word of God, but they don't have the capacity to fulfill it because they're missing the greatest part, and that is Romans 6, Romans 8. Baptism with Christ, circumcision of Christ, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Again, we have a responsibility not to walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now that we have received the law of the spirit, let us walk in it. Paul says, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit in the book of Galatians. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Again, we got two different types of people here. Those that walk in the flesh and fulfill the things of the flesh and those that walk after the Spirit and fulfill the things of the Spirit. Two different things, two different fruits. You can't be in the flesh and still say you're a born-again believer that has the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. It's an impossibility. You can't do it. Absolutely impossible. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death. Didn't we read in, in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death? So to live in, the, in sin is death. To live in the flesh is death. Why? Because the flesh produces sin and sin produces death. But the law of the Spirit produces righteousness. It fulfills the righteousness of the law. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. God never intended that we could live or we could fulfill the law in our flesh. God intended that the law would reveal to us that as we live in the flesh, we're producing sin and it's producing death in us. Pointing us to the wonderful answer of verse 25. Jesus Christ is the answer. Verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. How in the world can anyone interpret Romans 7 verse 14 to 24 has been the normal Christian life when the person in verse 14 to 24 is someone who is living in the flesh and they're not pleasing God? That's not the way of true biblical Christianity. It is sad that that is the reality of many in the West, but they're not Christians. They are not Christians. 
And when on the day of judgment, they will be judged as evildoers, as workers of iniquity. Go read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus gives us a clear revelation of this on the day of judgment. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out devils, do great works in your name? And I will say unto them, depart from me, ye workers, ye workers of iniquity. Why were they workers of iniquity? Because every time they pulled out, you know, every time they reached in the depths of their being to try to fulfill the law, to fulfill the the the, the writings of the, the Bible, they came up empty because they were spiritually bankrupt. Oh, but they were casting out demons. They were prophesying. But they weren't being workers of righteousness. They weren't under the law of the Spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I'm sorry, but I don't, I, there is no way I can believe that Paul was the man in Romans chapter 7 when he's at the same time living uh, in the flesh, which is at enmity with God, not being able to please God, and not being Christ if he doesn't have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him, but at the same time he's getting the inspiration of the New Testament writings? God forbid. God forbid that we would continue to interpret Romans 7 in such a carnal and, and devilish way that is trying to turn grace into a license to sin. Paul answered that in Romans chapter 6. God forbid, how can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How? How can you live to the law of sin and death when you're supposed to be living under the law of the Spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus? And notice what it says in verse 9. The Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That is the greatest evidence and the greatest assurance and the greatest confidence of a truly born-again believer is the Spirit of God dwells in them. And they are Christ. They belong to Jesus. Verse 10. And if Christ be in you, so the Spirit of God dwells in you, and Christ be in you. The body, the flesh, is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, three times, verse 9, the Spirit of God dwell in you, verse 10, Christ be in you, verse 11, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Beloved, do you see the normal Christian life here? Isn't this beautiful? He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make you alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Four times we're clearly told that the spirit of God dwells in us. That's your assurance. Quit looking to men to give you assurance that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. The spirit of God should give you that assurance. The reality that Christ is living in you, the hope of glory should be that assurance. The whole world could stand up against you and say that you're, you're an evil beast that's going to hell. But because the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, it won't affect you. And because you're producing the fruit of righteousness by the Spirit of Christ, which is the law of the Spirit working in you, it won't affect you what men say. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. A true born-again believer is not 
a debtor to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. What did Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. If you live after the flesh, you'll die because it produces sin and the wages of sin is death. The payment for your sin, the payment for walking in the flesh is sin and the payment for sin is death. That's not God. God isn't too weak to deliver us from the power of sin. Are you kidding me? He is a mighty savior from sin. But that's only a good news. That's only good news to those that don't want to continue in sin. But those that want to continue in fornication, those that want to continue in, in watching porn, those that want to continue getting drunk, those that want to continue in worldliness and ungodliness, denying the power of God, they don't want to hear the truth. And I'm here to contend for the truth. I'm here to contend for the truth because I love my Lord and I know what he's capable of doing. And I'm here to oppose evil, wicked, seducing deceivers that are leading men and women astray into the lake of fire. This is God's truth. Bow to it or run from it, but don't twist it. Verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Notice it's the spirit of Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about letting Christ work in us and through us by his spirit. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. How can you be led by the spirit of God if the spirit of God isn't dwelling in you? How can you continue to walk in the flesh if the spirit of God is dwelling in you, fulfilling the righteousness of the law in you? And again, the evidence that we are sons of God is by the Spirit of God and the fruit that it's bringing forth. Verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There you go. There's the witness the witness, the Spirit Himself will bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Beloved, I hope that you have seen and if you keep on reading all the way through to verse 28, you'll see the Spirit has made reference again and again. But I just hope that this lays to rest the excuse and the lie that Romans 7 verses 14 through 24 is a normal Christian life. It's not a normal Christian life. It is a normal carnal life that Jesus wants to set you free from. So if you can honestly say that you have not died to sin, you have not experienced the circumcision of Christ, and that you're still in your sin, but you don't want to be that no more, you really want to turn away from it, you really want to repent, then I ask that you get on your knees and you cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a mighty Savior, who is a loving Savior, who would never allow you to continue in a life that is pure wretchedness. That is not a loving God.
That is not a loving God. And if you will turn to Christ, he will cleanse you and he will perform a circumcision on your inner man that no man could, 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 could perform. And he will give you of his spirit and his spirit will dwell in you and you will be a joint heir of God or of Jesus Christ, you'll be an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And if we're heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, what power should we be lacking? What power will we be lacking if we're truly joint heirs of Christ? I could say that there's nothing, nothing that God won't be able to perform in us if we're truly yielded to him. Paul says in his in his book of in Ephesians to the letter of to Ephesus to the Ephesians he says uh, speaking of God that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think but beloved when you allow these false teachers to get into your heart into your mind then that makes it impossible it's a it's easier just to explain away your sin it's easier to put your faith and trust and hope in a false hope instead of truly repenting and truly pressing in to experience the spirit of god living and dwelling in you giving you that confirmation giving you that witness in your own spirit that you are a son of god praise the lord Father, I bless your holy name. I thank you, Father, for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who saves us from sin, from the power of sin, who comes into our lives and takes away our sin and destroys the work of the devil and places your seed in us, whereby we are heirs of you, O God. I bless your holy name, Father. And I pray, O God, that the convicting work of your Holy Spirit would be all over this, Lord, leading men and women to true salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.